everyone, and welcome to the show. This is episode number 52 of Pop Culturally Deprived, and today we're going to be talking about Die Hard 2, Die Harder on your yippee ki yay motherfucker podcast. I'm Mandy Kay. And <gasps> she swore. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Matthew Vose. <laughs> This is episode 52 of Pop Culture Deprived, and today we're talking about Die Hard 2, but it's actually our 53rd episode. This is our one-year podcast anniversary. so happy one year to you, Mandy. Happy one year to you, Matthew. I, I think we'll do a proper uh, debrief. What did we learn? Lessons for to take into year two, separate to this, but what have you learned? What have you enjoyed over the last year? Podcasting is really, really fun, but it takes a lot of time. Mm. That's what I've learned. I think so. Not the podcasting itself. The actual recording. The actual sitting down like you and me talking for an hour or so. Yeah, it's the watching stuff. It's the editing stuff. It's the researching about what you're watching stuff. Mm. It's, it's a lot of time. Yeah, we want to sound like we know what we're talking about. So. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? It's totally worth it. You know, I, I used to read a lot. I used to crochet a lot. And now I don't do anything <laughs> except for podcasts. Hmm? <laughs> but you know what we're getting ready to start year two and i think that's amazing so mm. how about you any any high level words of wisdom that you've come out of this year i think i definitely agree with you on the time thing i think uh, i always say like just do the thing hey you know that thing that mandy does just doing it just do it um i've just lo- i i've really enjoyed that research so you're talking about reading up on what we're doing and things i was thinking about it earlier how it's almost been the films I've known most about that I've researched the most. You know, Star okay. Trek 2, I went and listened to a whole audiobook and read so much stuff about it and dug up some interviews. Die Hard, this time last year, I was reading newspaper cuttings from the mid-80s about salaries and trying to make sure <laughs> I understand. So it's it's getting an even better understanding and knowledge of things I already think I had a good understanding and knowledge about. Right. Hmm. It's It's so easy to go into it and be like... Oh yeah, it's Die Hard. I know loads about this because I've seen it a lot. Well, no, that's that's not true. That's not the same thing. Don't come into it assuming because you know the content itself inside out, you know it even better um, to talk about it in a more thorough way. Yeah, definitely. Well, Matthew, I'm really glad we've been doing this together for a year and I can't wait to do another year. Yes, let's bring it on. We've got some good stuff lined up, so uh, I'm quite excited to get into it. Yeah. All right, well, let's dig into Die Hard 2. The hard to, the harder. <laughs> um, have you seen that Simpsons episode? No. Oh, um, Sideshow Bob, who is a nemesis of Bart Simpson, gets a tattoo that says, Die, Bart, die. And when he's in court, because they're not sure they should let him out of prison because he's going to be a danger to Bart, he says, no, it's German. It says, the Bart, the. Oh. <laughs> okay. So that has now basically become, anytime I see die somewhere, it's like, oh, the hard too. The harder. <laughs> okay, that makes sense. How come you never watched this? <laughs> well, I mean, after we did the first one on the show, I was kind of locked into doing the rest of them on the show, so I couldn't watch it until now because we had always planned to do this as our anniversary episode. So I had to wait. Mm. I had to wait to watch this for a whole year. You did. I did, you, yes. You, I, I might say you got to wait. <laughs> you were allowed not to have 
you didn't have to watch it so quickly, so that's not a bad thing. Okay. Um, I'm spoiling my feelings about this film. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Die Hard 2? Uh, well, Die Hard 2 is a 1990 action film and the second in the Die Hard franchise. Bruce Willis and Bonnie Bedelia reprise their roles as John and Holly McLean, respectively. William Sadler rounds out the main characters, replacing Alan Rickman's Hans Gruber as the villainous Colonel Stewart. And interestingly enough, Die Hard 2 is still based on a book, but by a different author than the original. The screenplay was adapted from Walter Wager's novel 58 Minutes, but Roderick Thorpe, who wrote Nothing Lasts Forever, the basis of the first Die Hard, was still given credit for creating certain original characters. And 58 Minutes was actually intended to be the story for a sequel to Arnold Schwarzenegger's Commando, which is why General Esperanza is from the fictional country Valverde. Die Hard 2 had a budget of $70 million and made $240 million worldwide, almost doubling that of Die Hard. However, Bruce Willis's salary did not double, so Die Hard 2 was worth only 1.5 Bruce Willis's. <laughs> and he, he was given a massive uh, salary for that first one, so God, if that had doubled, because there's not so much time between the two. No, but you want to know what's really funny, though? He did Look Who's Talking before he did Die Hard 2, and he made $10 million for Look Who's Talking, and he only made seven point five for this. God, and he was only a voice in that. Unless I met... Maybe I'm messing that up, but I'm pretty sure that's what I saw last night. Uh, I wonder if they were... Uh, it was a contract that was pulling him in for multiple sequels or something as well. Oh, nope. Look Who's maybe. Talking, $10 million. Look wow, Who's Talking 2, $10 million. God, so, they, yeah. they must have decided he was properly bankable by this point. It had to be. Uh, I mean, I'm yeah. surprised he didn't make $10 million for Die Hard 2. Yeah. but and, and clearly he is bankable. He is still making significant films today. He is a big, big star. Yeah. Uh, the last movie that I have salary information for on this website is Live Free or Die Hard from 2007, which I think that's number mm-hmm. four, right? Yeah. Uh, he made $25 million for that one. Good luck to him, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, if you haven't seen Die Hard 2, but you have seen Die Hard 1, then you already know what this movie is about. Uh, John mm. McClane continues to be a destructive badass, but this time he's in an airport instead of an office building. Yeah. We talked on the last one about how Die Hard has become a genre trope in and of itself. Die Hard on a boat. Die Hard in a hotel die hard in a cruise ship and so on yeah i mean because this was die hard in an airport i mean it literally was die hard but i totally understand where that comes from now um it didn't make as much sense to me last year when we talked about the first one um but seeing this one i totally get it Mm. die hard on the starship enterprise (laughs) um and yeah there's the little expedition out at the end but then they go back to the airport. <laughs> right. Well, and but even the expedition on the end is technically still kind of on airport land. Mm. It's just not, not the airport proper. So, mm. yeah. um, How were you able to watch this? I had to rent it from Amazon. Okay. I, it wasn't streaming anyway. No. None of the movies we've been doing recently have been streaming for me. So yay for having to rent things. <laughs> 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 I I had the same thing. I, I wanted to stream it or get it off Sky, but it wasn't on anywhere, so I had to 
stand up, take a DVD off the shelf, take the XCOM DVD out of my Xbox, put this DVD in. Oh, life is and then so later hard. When, well, I wanted to go back to XCOM later on, so I had to get up, I had to take <laughs> this out of the drive, I had to put XCOM back in. Oh, it's Ugh. just so hard to be Matthew. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. I remember you quite enjoying Die Hard. That that was a good film for us to have started on, I think. Uh, yes. What did that set up in terms of expectations for this one? Oh, it set the bar really high. Um, mm. I, I did. I really expected to enjoy this because I enjoyed the first one so very much. Okay. And I'm not going to ask you about uh, the, the characters that we asked about last time, but there's a, a pretty good supporting cast in this film. So what's your experience of director Rennie Harlan and then... William Sadler, John Amos, Dennis Franz. Okay, so Rennie Harlan, I looked up his filmography and there was only one movie on it that I've ever seen. But it's a fantastic Mm -hmm. movie. He directed The Long Kiss Goodnight with Gina Davis Mm -hmm. and Samuel L. Jackson. I love that movie. So that kind of makes me want to go see other movies that this guy's directed. But I'd never actually heard of most of them. You've not seen Deep Blue Sea? No. Okay. I don't think so. Okay. Okay. Uh, that, that might go on the list because that's worth watching. All right. Good. Uh, um, William Sadler is the sheriff on Roswell, and I don't care how many other things I see him in because I saw him on Roswell first. He is always going to be the sheriff on Roswell. Okay. <laughs> He's a proper jobbing actor. I see him pop up in so many things, and particularly recently, the, the kind of, uh, not necessarily serious, but... Um, very straight roles on American dramas. So he was the president in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Iron Man 3. He's been in, I think, Arrow or The Flash? The Flash, I think he was in. He was on Hawaii Five O. He was on Blacklist. He was in Damages. He's Homeland, Elementary. Like, yeah, all he's... these dramas that I watch every so often. It's like, oh, <laughs> hey, it's that dude who was in so many films. <laughs> yeah, he's kind of like Mark Shepard in that way. He's he's that guy. Mm. But because I know him so, so well from Roswell, like, for me, that's just his identity. <laughs> and okay. so, like, right. when I see him as the president on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., I'm like, oh, the sheriff's the president now. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's also a... Figure of Grey in Star Trek: Deep Space Nine. Oh, only in, only in a few episodes, but that's that was a very good role for me. Did that very well. Um, okay. And there was another film on our list that he's in, which is the film that I think of him from. So we will see that when we get there. Okay, I probably actually should have looked up his filmography, but I was just like, nope, he's the sheriff. <laughs> nice. So I didn't look it up. Um, but yeah, he is in a lot of stuff. Mm. Um, okay, Dennis. Franz, Franz, not sure how to say that. I recognize his face. I am aware of NYPD Blue. I never watched NYPD Blue, but it's impossible to have grown up around a television in the 90s and not know what NYPD Blue is. Yeah. Okay, that's what I know him from. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And then uh, John Amos, I recognize his face, but I couldn't name anything he's in. And then when I looked him up... I still wasn't sure why I recognized his face because the the thing he's most popular for or most well known is the Mary Tyler Moore show and oh crap what was the other one I just lost it can I can I tell you yes he's Fitz Wallace in the West Wing that's 
That's why I know his face. <laughs> okay, that makes so much sense. Um, because I mean, he he was on two other big shows: the Mary Tyler Moore Show and the other one, like Roots. That is not the one I'm thinking of, but I've never seen Roots. Ooh. Okay, it's like Good Times. Is that a show? Oh, Good Times. Yeah, good yeah, times. yeah. Good times it was that well. one. Okay. And I've never watched those, so I was thinking, I don't know why I know his face, but it's the West Wing. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. And it, it almost works, because in the West Wing, he is a admiral. He's an admiral. You can almost see it. This character does kind of go into that, you know, military commander at this point, and then going into the commanding the forces rather than being on the field. Right. Hmm. Okay. So I'm not going to ask about your experience of other things like this, because we did that conversation last time. So, did you enjoy the hard to the harder? <laughs> I did. It's entertaining. Mm. It's definitely not as good as the original. Mm. But if you like watching Bruce Willis shoot things and blow stuff up, you're going to like this one. Yeah. Yeah, this is not an actively bad film or a bad sequel. It just does its job as a 90s action film. Right. It okay. it did not meet the bar that Die Hard set. Yeah. Okay, so let's let's talk about that. Let's talk about it as a sequel. And okay. then we'll talk about it as a film on its own. Um, so do you have thoughts on why this doesn't work? Or, or what do you, about this do you think doesn't work in the same way that Die Hard did? I think what they did was rather than trying to make an actual sequel, they just tried to remake the first one because the first one was so popular. Hmm. And so we literally get the exact same formula. Holly's in trouble. There are bad guys trying to destroy something. John's the only one who actually understands what's happening and tries to stop it. I mean, you could say those exact words about both movies. <laughs> and, yeah. and and so there was no growth. There was no moving forward for any of these characters. They're all in exactly the same place as they were in the first one. Except, yes, okay, John and Holly stayed together. He lives in L.A. now, and he's a cop in L.A. instead of in New York. But it's all exactly the same. There's no growth. There's no moving forward. And I think that did the story a real disservice. Yeah, I think I'd utterly, utterly agree. And the first one is written in a very clever way. The, the way it builds stuff from the beginning. The way you're not quite sure what's going on. What are they stealing? Are they terrorists? Are they blowing things up? And then eventually it becomes clear as you go through. Whilst they try to do this in Die Hard 2... They do it in very short spaces of time. The the betrayal, the red tape and the blue tape on the guns, that, that only comes in and is explained about 10 minutes later. They, they don't spend time setting anything up or just giving you hints that there's something more going on. Right. And that, that's one example, but I kind of feel that, that most of the way through. The film has a lot of plot, and, and the first one has a lot of plot. It's got a lot of characters, each with their own thing going on. But in this one, they only come in short chunks. Almost sort of um, American advert chunks. <laughs> Resolve this bit of the plot, set a bit of a cliffhanger, then move on. Yeah, and, and one thing this movie did that the first movie didn't do is it didn't really trust its audience that much. In the first mm. movie, there was very little dialogue, and the audience was trusted to understand what they were seeing and to kind of follow the story as it unfolded. In the second one, we got so much exposition in the form of news stories being on in the background <laughs> that yeah. it was ridiculous. I'm like, I don't need three different news anchors telling me about this political prisoner who's coming into the airport. 
you know, and they kept doing it. Like every five or 10 minutes, the camera would like pan over and all we would hear was what was on the TV. And that got frustrating and tiresome. Mm. On on Christmas Eve, people do not watch the news that much. No. <laughs> like they, no. they especially they, not uh, while they're in an airport. <laughs> no, exactly. All the airports would be showing Christmas films or adverts or something. Yeah, the 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 news is a little obtuse the way they use it to to fill you in with what's going on. Because we don't even need all of the backstory about the dude. It's just it's a political prisoner coming through. Right. We need one line. We need one line from the control room, like, keep an eye on that. It's really important. And then move on. But it's the whole sequence with naked William Sadler um, <laughs> and his introduction with the news. And he then grabs the remote control and spins and turns off the TV like he's shooting it. <laughs> Which, like, we've all done. <laughs> but I, I do it for the fantasy of being, like, you know, hard guy with a gun. He actually gets to do this stuff. He does not have a fantasy of shooting his TV off. Right. Yeah, no, that, that whole sequence made no sense to me. Like, it was out of character. <laughs> like, okay. And I didn't even know this character yet, and I could tell it was out of character. It was, yeah. just, it was weird. I mean, he looks good. I wish I looked that good. So that's just, <laughs> I'm not taking that away from him. I just, I, I, he didn't look good, but he was spinning and shooting the remote control at the TV. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, you're absolutely right. Yeah, I think. What I always get the sense is exactly as you say, they, they copied the first film in its style and in its content, but they missed the point that it's the, a lot of the, the wit in the dialogue, mm-hmm. what there is, it, uh, the, the one-liners and him muttering to himself as he goes around. It's the thematic work it does in setting up this amazing villain who's such a contrast to him and having the, the differences for the office workers and people starting to root for him even though he's completely out of place being in that office building. Right. I think there were a lot of character moments that we got in the first one that we don't get in this one. Mm. You get John McClane showing a lot of vulnerability when, you know, after he has the fight with Holly, he's berating himself and he's talking about what he should have done and all of that stuff. We get the scene Mm. with him pulling the glass out of his feet and talking to Al about, you know, he misses his wife and that, I think it was something like she heard me say I'm sorry, but she didn't hear me say I love her or something like that. And so there's all this vulnerability built into his character. He's not just the badass who's shooting people. Mm. And in this sequel, we got none of that. It's literally just why don't people listen to me? Why does this always happen to me? And I have to shoot everybody and stop them. Yeah. The difference between Hans Gruber and Colonel Stewart is also huge. Hans Gruber they built him from the beginning to show us who he was as a character. There were little tells in the movie of how he was the leader and how he was the one to watch, even though they never explicitly told us that to start with. And throughout mm. the course of that movie, you almost kind of rooted for him a little bit. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, he's Alan Rickman. But <sighs> Hans Gruber is, I mean, in that you even equated him as one of the greatest villains of all time. You put him up there with mm. Darth Vader and Kaiser Soze. And Colonel Stewart is not a villain's name I've ever heard in my life. You know, no. he was very cookie cutter, very, oh, he's a military guy who's turned bad. They don't ever really actually explain why. And he's, he's not engaging. You know, you never want him to succeed. Most of the time you're looking at him thinking, wow, all of this stuff is impossible to happen in the 90s. <laughs> and so you just, I mean, just the differences 
are vast and many between the first movie and the second movie when it comes to anything other than action. Yeah. Yeah, because the action is very good. The action is phenomenal. I mean, and... generally. The special effects are good. Mm -hmm. I think this was one of the first movies where they did digital matte painting to do Mm -hmm. digital composites. Mm -hmm. And... You know, it, it was really good. The special effects were really good. The practical effects were really good. And they were what you would expect to see in a great action movie. Yeah. But sometimes you want more than just stuff blowing up. <laughs> okay, sometimes I want more than just stuff blowing up. How about that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you're a woman. You want the <laughs> romance. Oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no. <yeah. laughs> Blow more stuff up. <laughs> Just in case anyone outs me, that was a full joke. Okay? <laughs> yes, that, that that was Matthew doing sarcasm, y'all. I'm being ironic, yeah. Um, okay, so as a, as a sequel, it is definitely less good than its uh, predecessor. It's it's a weaker version of, but it's not a bad film. I think, like I say, it's, it, it's not Highlander 2, which is an actively bad film. <laughs> um, so this film on its own... Would you recommend anyone watch this? Oh, yeah, we fancy a good action film. Let's put Die Hard 2 on. Only if it was a marathon of Die Hard 1 and then Die Hard 2. Right. I wouldn't just say, oh, Die Hard 2 is such a great movie. We should watch it on its own merit. <laughs> yeah, because it is good, but it's not different than most other action films about this time. Right. Yeah. I want to dig into the detail of the film a little bit more. Um, you made an interesting comment about people doing this stuff in the 90s. Is this... When did you say it came out? 1990? 1990. So, so we're just in there. Um, what what do you mean about people doing this stuff in the 90s? I could not suspend my disbelief that any of this was possible in 1990. That Colonel Stewart could have a tech set up like that, mobile. That he could have actually turned off remotely all of the power at the airport that he could have you know turned off all of the communications like it just seemed really really far-fetched to recalibrate a plane that's flying like the sensors in that plane for what it detects sea level to be like I'm sorry I just don't believe that's what like I would have a hard time believing that's possible now even Mm -hmm. though I'm certain it is but in the 90s, when you're looking at a terminal that's just got, like, DOS on it, <laughs> I, I no, I don't believe it. So I, I was having a hard time with, with some of that. Like, it was okay. very, very fantastical, which I think is okay in some settings. But when you're presenting a, a space as real world, quote, unquote, real world, mm-hmm. it, it's hard to be that fantastical about it without giving us a reason to think it would be. Hmm. So, I mean, they just played it as this is something that's actually going to happen. And I just had a really hard time with it. That's all. Yeah, I, 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 I can see that being uh, something that jars you out of it. See, I, I have something different that always grabs me when we get through the film. Okay. The, the bit, oh, it must be probably three quarters of the way through, maybe even more. He goes to the, uh, the, the police officer's station within the thing mm-hmm. with a machine gun. And then gets so annoyed, he pulls the trigger and starts firing at the police captain. Now, he knows it's blanks, mm-hmm. but no one else knows it's a blank. 
Like at that point, well, A, I don't think they would have left the machine gun on him, but fine. At that point, they go, oh my God, you're right. By the way, you're under arrest. Because no, no, you're not allowed to do that. None of us can hear anymore. <laughs> right. So, okay, that, that brought me out a little bit too, because it, if you remember, mm-hmm. Bruce Willis, like the the real human being, Bruce Willis, permanently lost some of his hearing from filming Die Hard because yeah. he shot a gun too close to his ear. So that, like, that's a legitimate actual thing that happened to him. And so mm-hmm. it didn't occur to them that there's a problem with firing a machine gun in an enclosed space? Yeah. No, they just wanted that the drama. would never yeah. happen. Like, at least if he fired it into the ceiling. Maybe. But he fires it at the person and the glass behind him. Yeah. I'm fairly sure that's an arrestable offence. <laughs> Well, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I so, think particularly he did a, a lot captain, of arrestable you know. offenses in this movie. Well, yeah. <laughs> but that one is just, oh, no, not good. Yeah. Okay. Um, you also mentioned there the resetting the sea level mm-hmm. and, and killing Chief O'Brien with his not very good English accent. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you called him Chief O'Brien. <laughs> what he is. It doesn't matter. It does not matter what I see Cole Meany in. I have watched hundreds of hours of him being Chief O'Brien. So, yep. (laughs) And in my thoughts, Doc. Hey, it's Chief (laughs) (laughs) O'Brien. Like he's in he's in a Guy Ritchie gangster movie. He's in all these sorts of things. No, always the dude from Star Trek. (laughs) I I kind of like it to give away the the callousness of um. Well, the whole group of what they're doing, but Colonel Stewart particularly. Like, he does not care. He wants to complete his mission by any means necessary. It just feels overly dramatic. And then to also have Bruce Willis out on the tarmac trying to stop them, it, it feels overdone. Okay. I'm, I was surprised that they crashed the plane mm. and killed all of those people. I 100% expected John McClane to stop it. I thought they were going to see him, they were going to realize what's happening, and they were going to pull up and not Mm. crash. The fact that they did crash the plane and kill all of those civilians kind of made Die Hard 2 a much darker movie than the first one. Mm -hmm. Because in the first one, we got very few civilian deaths. You know, we got Ellis died, a couple of the FBI agents died, Tagaki died. By and large, everybody except for the terrorists survived that movie. I think the the body count in in Die Hard was 23 people. Mm. And then we get to Die Hard 2, and it starts out largely the same. The people who are dying are the bad guys. But then they crash the plane, and 230 civilians who had nothing to do with this, who had no idea what was happening, all died. Hmm. And I don't know that they needed to. No. It didn't change anything. If they hadn't died, nothing would have changed. And it just, it felt unnecessary to me. And it took it to a place that I just didn't expect, if that makes sense. Yeah, I can understand that. Like like I say, I, I feel like, yeah, definitely it's an unnecessary moment. Oh, I can't think of a better way to do it, given what they have available to them. 
I'm just trying to think, is there some way they could do a, we land the plane, but then we shoot some of the people, or... This is why I'm not a writer. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just a well, critic. It's, <laughs> yeah, it, it's funny, because a lot of the times we talk about these problems, and we suggest ways that we go, yeah, that would have been a nice way to do it. It's hard, because they have very few tools actually available to them, except for some planes in the air and an airport full of people. Yeah, but Colonel Stewart only did it to be ma- malicious. Yeah. He was being callous and malicious. He didn't need to do that. Mm. I And I think that's where I keep getting hung up is okay. if his goal is to help the general escape and he's orchestrating all of this for that, then he should be focusing on that and not trying to punish the airport, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. I think I, I just didn't like it. It was 230 people who I wish hadn't died. Yes. and Yeah, when we were looking up stuff about this, it does. there's always a comment of, oh, this has got the highest body count of any diehard. It's like, well, yeah, because they blow up a plane of people. <laughs> yeah. So it had, um, if, if they hadn't blown up the plane, there would have been 41 deaths, which is almost double the amount that were in the first one. Mm. A lot of those were bad dudes because there were a lot more bad dudes. Yes. Bad dudes. I mean, there were two squadrons of, like, (laughs) military. (laughs) Military bad dudes. How about that? (laughs) Mm. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, Talking on character, then. We've not really mentioned the the plane itself. And there's one plane that we follow, Holly and uh, Dick Thornburg. Yeah, funny funny note about that. (laughs) I completely forgot who Dick Thornburg was. And I actually, I I wrote in my thoughts, I wonder what he did or what she did to get a restraining order. And then when I was re-listening to our Die Hard episode, I was like, oh, yeah, he's the one that she punched. (laughs) (laughs) Completely forgot. I'm not entirely sure it's all necessary. I'm certainly not sure he's necessary. Because his his big moment comes that he is the one who reveals what's going on. um, And that causes a huge panic at the airport. And that then stops Bruce Willis from being able to get to them. So he has to go on the press helicopter, which arguably gets him there faster anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think he has an impact on the film other than to give Holly someone to bounce off and for us to laugh at the idiot man again. That's entirely the reason that he's there. Um, I mean, I have a lot of issues with Holly's character in this movie. But if he hadn't have been there, it would have been so much worse. Hmm. Because literally all we would have gotten is Holly sitting on a plane, smiling when she's thinking about her husband and, you know, talking to the woman who tases her dog. <laughs> you know, there would have been zero conflict at all on that plane. Mm. And we needed something. Mm. And, and as much as he is fairly obnoxious, in both films, he's pretty capable at his job. He does get out and he does do the reporting from Nakatomi Tower, and then he does track down who McLean is and find his children. Now, what he does is not a good thing. Right. But, arguably, as a reporter, as a journalist, in inverted commas, that's the right thing. And even on this plane, he finds a way to find out what's going on and to report on it. But in each of those occasions, it's 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 being done in a, oh, he's terrible. Like, well, but you're supposed to, you know, try to find out. Yeah, but do something good with that information. You know, he could have tried to help. He could have, I don't know, he could have done something besides just be like, oh, this is going to like be amazing for my career and I've got the scoop. Yeah. And, 
like he gave no thought whatsoever to anybody else who was in danger. All he cared about was making himself look good. And that's what I can't stand about him. Yeah, that's fair. I, I will completely concede that. Yeah, and that's how they do it to make him seem like such an ass. Because he always likes, oh, Pulitzer, here I come. Yeah. So the Pulitzer he references, whatever. It is, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also on the plane is Holly. <sighs> Holly. Who doesn't get a lot to do in this film. <laughs> no, and it's it's so interesting. So when we talked about Die Hard, you said that Holly was one of the best written women in an action movie ever. Mm. And to compare that to the version of Holly that we get in Die Hard 2, they're not recognizably the same character. No. At all. Holly is something, she is used as a plot point. If Holly had died, we would very easily say that she had been fridged. Because she only exists for McLean to want to stop the bad guys because she is in a plane that's being affected by what they're doing. Yeah. She and and she doesn't know what's happening for the majority of the movie. So every time we get a shot of her, it's completely irrelevant to the story. It's just reminding us, oh yeah, she's in the air, and that's why John is doing what he's doing. Hmm. She has no agency. She has no relevance. She is not her own character. She's just having the story happen to her and around her. Sadly, yes, I would agree. And, that's and it's a really shame because sad because yeah <laughs> yeah in the first one you know she was a victim but she punched the reporter she stood up to Ellis and she even stood up to Hans a couple of times mm. you know well who put you in charge well you killed my boss so you did yeah you know she wasn't afraid she, or if she was she didn't show it she stood up and she did what she needed to do mm-hmm. and we got none of that in this movie. No. So it was it was sad. And it's it it's almost this is the sort of film that because I'm trying to think are there other women in this film? Uh, and yes there are. Uh there's the reporter, there's the old woman on the plane, there's the stewardess. The woman at the rental uh, car agency who asked John McLean for a drink. Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah, the the woman at the information desk and so on. But but that's that's kind of kind of it. And yet this film passes the Bechdel test because they talk about tasing a dog. <laughs> Which is, and that's the ridiculousness. Like, it's such a low bar that so many films don't pass. And yet when a film does pass it, it's still not good. Right. Hmm. Yeah. Do we want to comment on any of the other characters? So we we had, like we said, John Amos. We had the chap in charge of the airport. We had the engineer in charge of the airport. We had the janitor. We had the police chief. There are a lot of characters in this film. Let's talk about the guy in charge of... Air traffic control and the airport police chief. Mm-hmm. Because they made me so angry, I couldn't stand it. Okay. I mean, okay, so I understand initially why they were annoyed at John McClane. Because, I mean, mm. yeah, he just killed somebody in their airport. I get it, you know, but I understand John McClane's frustration, too. It's a crime scene. They needed to do something, whatever. They didn't believe him. They were like, eh, it's just some punk stealing baggage, whatever. John McClane proves them wrong. Mm. And they still don't take him seriously. John McClane proves them wrong over and over and over again, and they never start listening to him. The only time somebody listens to him is finally when 
the other military, John Amos's character, I can't remember his name, he finally listens to John McClane. Yes, I was wrong about you. Such an asshole after all. No, you were right. I'm just your kind of asshole. Yeah. Nobody else listens to him, even though he's been right every single time. And the one time he gets listened to, it's one of the bad guys. Yep. Like, what is happening? Is this, like, the Twilight Zone? <laughs> <laughs> like, it made no sense to me. And, I, and I'm wondering, though, is that a callback to the first movie? Because in the first movie, nobody took him seriously when he was trying to call the cops. But that makes more sense because he's just calling them so they don't believe that anything's happening because there's no alarms. There's nothing that you would expect. But here, they've already had a dead body. You know, they've already had communication shut down and they're still not listening to him. Yeah, I, I feel like there's a lot of it that is uh, they're more concerned with their jobs, with getting people through the airport and getting stuff done. So they don't want to believe that anything more serious is happening. Which, I, I get that instinct, so it feels fairly natural. But yes, it is... Uh, it, it's a plot point they go to too often. Maybe once or twice. I feel like at least the guy in charge of air control, uh, he did believe him, but he he wanted to diminish it and not take it that far. And saw that McLean was being a bit over the top at times. Yes, and and he did come around... And he was listening to him a little bit, but then the military showed up and they shut him out again. Mm. And it just, it made me so crazy because they wouldn't have known any of this stuff was happening. They would have nobody able to help if John McClane hadn't been there. Like they would have been screwed over completely if he (laughs) hadn't seen that flash of gun and followed them to see what was going on. Mm. And he just never got credit for it. No. Right up until the end when the police guy finally believes him and steps up to the plate. And then crashes the car and then can't move it again. It, it's a very weird moment. One quick comment on the air traffic controller. Ed Trudeau was played by Fred Thompson, who was the uh, senator for Tennessee for a number of years. And oh. as an attorney, had a role in the Watergate hearings. How interesting. And in fact, reading here, in 2008, he was the GOP presidential candidate. Anyway, I just thought that, that was interesting because you don't often see... Like, you, you get, you know, guys, actors or, or people who are in films who become politicians or go on to do something else, but he actually became a senator. <laughs> That's quite well, a step up. I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger was the governor of California. Ronald Reagan yes, became was. president. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and those are thing. Those are exceptions to the rule. Interestingly enough, they are all Republicans. Yes. I need to find out if there are any other political parties, people from other political parties who have gone from entertainment actors Mm. to political. Let's look at that. It's interesting. Yeah. TV people going to being politicians, not a good thing. Not usually, no. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Before we jump into our favorite moments, there's just one other thing that I wanted to mention. Okay. The music in this movie was significantly different than the music in the first movie. I remember in the first one noticing how beautifully it was scored. And in this one, the music really didn't stick out to me at all, except for the final song was another version of let it snow, just like Mm -hmm. in the first one. So that was a nice nod that they used the same Christmas song to end both movies. 
and, and so I, I feel like it was just another way that this this sequel was a poor imitation of the first. Hmm. Because they were both, uh, the music was done by Michael Kamen for both of them. So, so someone important in terms of doing uh, yeah. good, good music for things. I wonder if it's just the difference that, because I can't even really remember the score from the first one, except for that piece of music. <laughs> I want to say, was it Ode to Joy? Ode to Joy, yeah. Oh, it's a joy, yeah, which just over and over again and, and the great moment where it, it blares out when the vaults open. But it right. is just all the way through. Yeah, this this one, and maybe that's the thing. This one didn't have one thematic piece of music that tied everything together the way Oh, to mm. Joy did the first one. I will say, though, mm. that I, I kind of need to eat my hat a little bit. Okay. So over the last couple of months, uh, anybody who's followed me on Twitter might have noticed that I have argued on the side that Die Hard is not a Christmas movie. When we did the episode on Die Hard, I said it was a Christmas movie. <laughs> and I had arguments for why it was a Christmas movie. And I specifically told you that this movie wouldn't have happened if it wasn't at Christmas. Which is the exact opposite of what I've been arguing for the last little bit. So I need to take it back and say yes Die Hard is a Christmas movie Die Hard 2 is a Christmas movie and I was wrong and I'm sorry okay I, I think I might have said this last time that I can argue it both ways mm-hmm. um, and I think I might even have asked you this just could have been uh, the annual founding of the company party in July and it wouldn't have changed the story particularly well but it would have though or at least okay so my explanation when we talked about mm. Die Hard was that it would have because the fact that it was Christmas is what got John McClane to go see Holly because he was going to see his kids for Christmas. Okay. And so if it hadn't been Christmas, it's less likely that he would have made that trip. And so it yeah. would have happened differently. So yes, um, it, it can be argued both ways, but I just need to apologize for apparently arguing both ways very emphatically and being wrong because you can't do that (laughs) (laughs) Uh, well no you can you can absolutely change your stance and say no i now agree on this side like you don't have to diminish what you've said in the past you can say yes i was wrong and now i believe this thing okay (laughs) that is fine however i still i I, a year later i still think that's tenuous christmas does not have that big an impact on die hard uh, and it doesn't necessarily carry the morals of a christmas film oh no so definitely not that segues us very nicely to my final point before we get into our favorites though this film is set on christmas eve Mm -hmm. christmas is important to it because everyone travels at christmas so the airport is absolutely packed but there is no way you would describe this as a christmas film you're right (laughs) oh that hurt you didn't it (laughs) it did because i just said this was a christmas movie um because i think if i'm gonna say the first one is a christmas movie i feel like i have to say the second one is too but okay honestly the fact that this is on christmas is only because the first one was at christmas Mm. um because honestly it doesn't make sense for them to be transporting a political prisoner on christmas eve through a very very crowded airport because it's christmas and and like the original this was released in the summer this was released in june but it had to take place at christmas because it's a diehard movie yeah you know i mean that's just kind of that's how they set that up and it it's not relevant to the plot that it happens at Christmas because honestly it would have made more sense for there to be fewer people at the airport when Colonel Stewart was trying to do this. 
Yeah. Exactly. He has to do it when the political prisoner's coming through. And and I always wonder, like, would you really take a political prisoner through a public airport? Would you not take him to some air base? I don't know the answer to that. Probably, yeah, you'd probably take him to an air force base and yeah. not not a civilian airport. You in the UK, you wouldn't. I used to live under the landing path for a, a big air base in West London. And there were times you could just be like, okay, something's going on, the number of planes that are coming in. And so many times I'd Google it. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's coming up to the Olympics. So people are coming in. Oh, there's a wedding or there's a funeral for oh, the, the last royal wedding, in fact. It was so busy because that's where all the like really important people, the heads of state came into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what they use these things for. <laughs> they don't <laughs> land them at... It's, it's Dulles, isn't it? So is that yeah. Washington, D.C.? Yes, technically no. Um, it's not actually inside Washington D.C. It's in Virginia, it's but yeah, Virginia it's, it's isn't it? Yeah, but, but it's you go yeah. to to get to D.C. Yeah, uh, I don't know. Maybe they could. Maybe someone will write to us and say, "Oh, well, well actually." So you know. <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty sure there's an air force base not far from there. You'd imagine there's an air force base somewhere near the capital, right? Yes, <laughs> I, I should know more about United States geography than I do, but I don't. So. But yeah, I, I I mean it's a plot point. Mm. They had to do okay. it that way. Okay. Uh can you tell me any favorite things you have from this? Question mark. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I did come up with one favorite quote from John McLean. Mm-hmm. There was more dialogue in this movie than there was in the first one, but it was not good dialogue. There were no great one liners like there were in the first one. And so this, I, I struggled with this a little bit, but uh, when Holly and John are talking at the beginning um, about technology and John's aversion to technology, he says, progress peaked at frozen pizza. And it just made me <laughs> laugh because it's such a John McClane thing to say. Mm-hmm. And it's a good line. It's funny. Yeah. Yeah. It, it helps in grounding him, the, the everyman thing that I talked about previously yeah yeah he definitely maintained that everyman persona in this movie mm-hmm. mm. what about you oh i'm not sure i've got any dialogue the only thing is maybe when the woman asks him to go for a drink and he flicks his wedding ring at her and's like just the facts ma'am like i like the pun on just the facts <laughs> i hate that we have to have oh he's such a good-looking and charming guy, this random woman who's incredibly busy and having a long day at a busy airport will ask him out for a drink. I, I don't think that's believable. Yeah. Yeah, I had a hard time with it too, especially since it was very clear that he was doing, like, serious business. Mm. And and had a wedding ring on. Yes. Yeah. But we had to have John McClane is very masculine, and the yeah. only way we can get masculinity across is if a woman is fawning over him. Male wish for fulfillment. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I, I, you you mentioned about the uh, digital matte painting at the end and the, and the use of the effects. I love that ending sequence on the plane. Mm-hmm. Um. I I love the fight with John Amos because it's fairly brutal, and then he gets sucked into a plane, so that's good. And then Colonel Stewart comes <laughs> out, and we we've not seen Colonel Stewart fighting, but we've seen him preparing. We know he's really buff, and he wins. Like there is no way that John McClane is holding his own against this guy mm-hmm. and he doesn't and I always like that when it's yeah that the bad guy is better because this is the stuff he trains for and gets to do regularly 
Oh, yeah. So John McClane got his ass kicked in this movie. Yeah. But then lighting the fuel trail is good. Mm-hmm. That is a... It's a great effect. I love the uh, moment of it. I like it giving them a landing light. You know, like I've said, a great idea solves multiple problems. That absolutely does it. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was nice. Although, it still pulled me out just a little bit. Okay. Because... <laughs> Not not the effect itself, but the the result of the effect. Because at that point, all of the planes see it and realize they can use it to get in and to land. But my thinking is, if they all try to land at one time, they're all going to crash into each other and die. So how do they know when they're supposed to go? Because they still have communications cut off. And so mm. I I struggled with that a little bit. I know I, I that's not something I'm even supposed to consider. Like because it's a happy ending and everybody gets to land. I mean, the whole point of air traffic control is to keep everybody in order so that we don't have two planes taking off at the same time or landing at the same time so they won't hit each other. And they don't have anybody doing that. It's just, oh, I see a runway and I can land now. (laughs) There's like 15 Mm. planes up there. (sighs) Do I think about this stuff too much? Yeah, I think so because I just always assume it's like, well, whoever's closest, just start putting yourself down. Okay. Because the planes talk... Oh, no, because they can talk to the planes. Because they, they got that extra signal. Okay. The, the outer marker. All right. So may, maybe they can be like, right, you're lowest on fuel, you go next. Maybe. 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 Okay. All right. <laughs> well, I, I will let it go. How about that? Okay. Let it go. Let it go. <laughs> Die hard uh. never bothered me anyway. <laughs> <laughs> So, do we have anything more we want to talk about Die Hard 2? There was one other thing that really annoyed me and frustrated me, and it's just so stupid. So, at the end, when Holly's plane has landed safely, before any passengers have gotten off of this plane, John McClane is wandering around in circles just shouting Holly's name. Yeah. (laughs) Like, dude, nobody's gotten off the plane yet. She can't hear you. You're not being helpful. This is dumb. <laughs> okay. It was dumb. That I just I had to say something about it because it was dumb. You you have thought about the ending of this film way more than <laughs> I ever thought about it. <laughs> but yes, yes, he is just walking around with like ah, Adrian. <laughs> <sighs> okay. okay. Is there anything else that you want to talk about? Uh no, I think this is the point to consider the next film because like you said this is a franchise and there is uh die hard 3 this is the only die hard that has a number in it no that's not entirely true uh die hard 4 technically has a number in it because i think over here it was called die hard 4.0 but over there it was called live free or die hard why wasn't it called that over there well if we ever get to it we will have to discuss that do you still want to watch die hard 3 uh die hard with a vengeance I do, because you said it was your favorite of all of the Die Yeah, yeah. And it's got Samuel L. Jackson in it, so... Yeah, it's a damn good film. Um, Do we want to save it for year three? Uh, Yes and no. I don't know if I want to wait that long is the thing. Okay. No, I think we should move to it sooner. I think it would be good to get it done over the summer months. Okay, does it take place at Christmas too? I can't remember. (laughs) Okay. I don't think I believe you, but okay. <laughs> so let's do it. Let's do it in uh, six months. All right. Yeah. 
Uh, we got one piece of feedback about uh, Die Hard 2. So not many of you had thoughts on this, but but the one was very strong. Uh, at Kung Fu said that number two is the best of the diehards, though the one with Kevin Smith holds a special place in my heart. So we're sorry. Um, <laughs> what I, I think I'd be really interested in hearing of why is this one the best of them? Is it because it's got this this pure action thing? So you can just watch it and go, oh, it's so mindless, I can just let it wash over me. You don't have to be, oh, that's a great moment, that's a great moment. You're just enjoying it for the, what it is, maybe? <laughs> well, it is a good action movie. Mm. Like I say, there are other franchises that go to bad sequels. Highlander, The Crow. If I engage my brain, I could probably think of more. But there are some that they just start trotting out the same sort of thing again and again and again. At least this does something like, oh, it's watchable and enjoyable. After we spoke about the Muppet Christmas Carol, uh, I asked on Twitter whether we should be doing documentaries, whether we should cover documentaries, do a documentary season, what are people's thoughts on documentaries? And we've had lots of feedback. Uh, Jawsbot7 proposed that we do a series that begins with This Is Spinal Tap, at Not not Sailing Alone, loves a good documentary, even when the filmmaker crafts an argument that may or may not be accurate. Some are uplifting, some are informative, some are propaganda. And and we got a number of lists of suggestions of things that people said we should look at. So I I feel like there's room for this. Mandy, you are the one who don't, you don't really watch documentaries. So what are you thinking? I think if we sprinkle one in every now and then, it's fine. I don't know that I want to do like a scheduled once a month or once a quarter type of thing, but but every once in a while it'll be okay. I mean, generally, the show has kind of turned into you tell me what to watch and I watch it. <laughs> okay. So we've got a little bit Not of that going in, on. So I'll <laughs> In less of a patriarchal fashion than that sounds, okay? <laughs> guys, guys. <laughs> didn't mean it like that mandy is taken by the hand in her her film watching (laughs) no we are totally smashing the demon lizard patriarchy over here and that is not what i meant i just meant there are so many things on the list that it's kind of hard for me to pick and so when people say hey you should do this one because it's on your list then i'm just like okay well we'll schedule that okay is that is that a better way to say that matthew that is, yes, thank you. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, so you would rather sprinkle them in than do, like, a documentary season. April is documentary season on PC Deprived. Yes, because I don't know okay. that my brain can handle doing a string of documentaries. Okay. Unless they really, really surprise me and I love them. Okay. Uh, well, hopefully so. I might schedule not necessarily quite one per month, but but fairly regularly. I, I have a list of a number that I'd love to watch, um, and, and I know okay. what sort of documentaries I like to go to. All the suggestions from people, uh, thank you very much. Uh, we had a couple of people who suggested uh, This Is Spinal Tap, which I did go back to Josie directly, like, that is a fantastic idea, particularly because one of them on my list is uh, Metallica's documentary, Some Kind of Monster. Not necessarily, well, no, it is a good documentary. It is a great documentary, just it's a bad subject matter, so that was why that was one worth discussing that could be an interesting twofer uh jlmo came in with a couple of suggestions i'm just going through the list here there were so many different people shouting things out so i think i'm going to go through the lists i'm going to come up with a few that might be worth watching because there's stuff being suggested that i've not seen so that's going to make my future watching list so thank you Uh, and we will start throwing them into the schedule okay 
Uh, we also did have some feedback on our first two Christmas movies that we did this month. Sorry, that we did last month. Uh, Garrett at Garrett CRW on Twitter says, add me to the list of people who think that the Muppet movie needs to go on Mandy Kay's list for PC deprived. I thought we were friends, Garrett. Mm-hmm. That's all I have to say. It was on the other day. I was flicking around the TV and it was on. I was like, oh, this is kind of rough. Like the, the puppetry, the puppetry itself is really good. The puppets do not look as technically impressive. I think when they were in um, the more fantastical environment of Dickensian Britain. Hmm. Okay. Hmm. Uh, Lauren at Six Legged Knits agrees with Garrett. She says, I loved Muppet Treasure Island and also agree that the Muppet movie should be watched as a general pop culture education deal. I'm starting to think I'm not going to get out of this one. <laughs> uh, mm, we'll see. Can I class any of them as a documentary and slip them in there? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> mm, probably not. Probably not. Um, and then Brandon at Shoe Size 38 says that he is so happy that Christmas Vacation stands the test of time. If you'd like to have your thoughts featured in this segment, you can use the hashtag PCDeprived on Twitter. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Eloquent Gushing. You can email us at podcast at eloquentgushing.com, or you can leave us a 90-second voice message at speakpipe.com slash eloquentgushing. You can find each of us on Twitter. I'm at Mandy Kay. And I'm at Matthew Vose. Pop Culturally Deprived is 100% funded by listeners like you through our Patreon page. Anything you can give, even $1 a month, it gives access to exclusive content, live watches, extra thoughts, and early access to the show as well. And it helps to support the show and help us develop everything else that we do. To find out more, go to patreon.com slash eloquentgushing. And if you want to keep up to date with the latest news announcements, as well as find all the other shows that we do, don't forget to go to our homepage, eloquentgushing.com, and subscribe to the weekly newsletter. We'll be back next week with another episode of Pop Culturally Deprived. Until next time, I'm Mandy Kay. And that concludes our object lesson for this evening. Pop Culturally Deprived is an Eloquent Gushing production. For more information, visit eloquentgushing.com or find us on Twitter at eloquentgushing.